Father, help us to take on such a posture that our lives are an offering poured out. Remind us yet again of the beauty, the mystery, the power of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. There's a man named Robert Kellerman who wrote a book called Beyond the Suffering. The book talks about uh, really the legacy, the history of the slave spiritual, the slave song. And even makes the connection to our care. So what can we learn from the legacy of a, spl- of, of a slave spiritual? He talks about how these spirituals illustrated this tension of a slave's daily life. This tension between suffering, between hurt and hope. Empathy and encouragement. This already and this not yet God's kingdom. Thomas Higginson a New England abolitionist, writes about these spirituals. The attitude is always the same. Nothing but patience for this life. Nothing but triumph in the next. Sometimes the present predominates. Sometimes the future. But the combination is always implied. So we see this interplay between hurt and hope. This this deeper perspective this deeper reality that, that challenged a common tendency then and perhaps for us to draw this hard line between heaven and earth. Earlier in the book, he talks about these slaves who had been stolen from their country and they're on this ship coming across the Atlantic and they're learning this new language. In the midst of their physical suffering and psychological agony, their groans became this sustaining language known as the moan. Barbara Holmes writes that on these slave ships, out of their despair, this moan became the first vocalization of a new spiritual vocabulary. Terrible and wonderful. It was, a, it was a critique, a prayer, a hymn, a sermon, all at once. And I would say that this morning, our passage in 2 Timothy, and really, that Paul takes on this language that assumes an urgency that captures the tension that we often feel in the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. That yes, we see God working Today, His Spirit is moving and bringing redemption and restoration. But there will come a day when the kingdom will come and glory and all these things will be made right. And we feel that tension today. And remember that Paul is writing from prison. And earlier in Philippians 2, he he acknowledges the possibility of his death. But here in 2 Timothy, he accepts his fate. That his ministry, his tireless proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ has led him to die. Paul realizes he's going to die. And though his death is imminent, his trust is relentless. And though his charge here is solemn, it is hopeful. So let's read 2 Timothy beginning uh, in verse 1 of chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. The word of the Lord. This morning, I want, to, I want to consider just two postures for the Christian life. How are we to live while we wait? And what will, re, what will we receive when Jesus comes? So while we wait, and when He comes. While we wait. If you look, you'll see that the language of Christ's appearing sort of bookends this passage calling us to a sort of active waiting in obedience that confronts our fear and our hesitations by reminding us to whom we are accountable. Uh, My therapist often reminds me, uh, he says, you know, remember who you are, but more importantly, remember whose you are. So in light of who God is, this reality of God as Father in this passage, we are called into places where people are indifferent. We're also called into places where people are ambivalent to this urgency we see in the message of Jesus. Paul writes to Timothy that in light of of who God is and in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is to judge, there is this reality that Paul is uh, reminding Timothy of that, that Christ has come to judge, or will come to judge. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, it says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I think we have a hard time with the language of judgment. It's hard for us to to reconcile this judgment with a God who loves us. But if if you look throughout Scripture, this, this idea of judgment, of God's judicial decisions, they serve His covenant purpose. In other words, he's faithful to his people. And his work throughout all of history, his work concerns restoring that relationship. And Paul is hyper aware of this reality, that Christ will judge the believer and the unbeliever. But at the end of the day, isn't that what we want? Do we not want Jesus to come and means right? Consider all the chaos and injustice, the depression, the anxiety, the cancer, all that. We want made right. 
Paul has a charge for Timothy. There's also a charge for the church in light of this of Christ's appearing, of Christ coming again. And remember, you know, I, I preached before that, that, that Paul is, is aware that, that Timothy perhaps has some, some timidity. Timidity. I tried saying that a couple times. Um, it's my favorite band, actually. Um, y'all heard Timothy's timidity? Um, sorry. Um, Paul's aware that Timothy may have uh, a tendency to, to, to kind of stay in the back and not be bold. And he continues to drive that in. But again, he's gentle. And he's, a, he's empowering Timothy towards these things. And I, you know, I, I thought about this this week as I was preparing that I, I think this passage is pretty timely uh, that Marshall has returned from sabbatical. So I want to spend a few moments giving a charge to you, Marshall, and then... Uh, and then bring you guys back in. So you guys can tune out for a minute. Um, kidding. Uh, so Marshall, as, as we look at this passage, just got a couple things I want to say to you. <laughs> Raise your glass. Um, preach the word. We don't need you to give us clever sermons. We just need you to remind us week in and week out the beauty and mystery of Jesus and all that he has brought, brought in, uh, to us. You know, in Revelation 2, we look way ahead and Jesus is talking to the church of Ephesus. This church, And he's saying, you guys have done a great job. You have endured. You have tested the false teachers. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Marshall, let us grow tired of our first love. Remind us, help us to remember over and over again. When you feel like, gosh, I just feel like I'm saying the same thing. We need to hear the same thing. We need to be reminded. And always be ready. You know, Paul says, in, in, in season and out of season. There's never a time where you can just sit back. Always be ready. Press into that truth for your own heart. But in those moments where you need to rebuke or encourage, be patient. Be patient with people. Be gentle. And remembrously, Paul wrote that, that we fight against a teaching that is anti antithetical to our flourishing. Earlier he talked about it spreads like gangrene, not only in our hearts, but, but in our community. And in a world where there is no shortage of teachings to suit any passion we may have. Paul is calling us back. In fact, this language of, of turning aside is a strong term used medically to describe wrenching a limb out of joint. If we consider that, that we are the body of Christ, some are hands, some are feet, so on, the last thing we want is for, for one of us to be wrenched out of joint. Marshall, fight for cohesion in our church. Fight for the peace and purity of our church. That ours would be a community rooted in the kind of posture that, that is incarnational. That we are bringing light in us with this beauty. And Marshall, when you face hardship, endure the suffering. When you face slander, 
endure the suffering. Those days where you feel like no one is listening to you or respecting you, endure the suffering. Let your suffering produce prayer, not despair. Remember whose you are. Now, for Hope Presbyterian Church, would you cultivate this beauty and this mystery every day in your own lives? Be teachable. Strive for the peace and purity of this church. In Titus 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. These are the postures. This is the posture we take while we wait. What will it be like when He comes, when Jesus comes again? I read a story of a missionary who went to this remote village whose people, everyone in the village, when they turn 65, they build their own coffin. It's this idea that this deep awareness of their mortality and perhaps a moment to kind of reflect on how you've lived your life. And I think that Paul here, in, in a sense, is built often. And he's reflecting, and there's, there's a confidence in how he has lived his life. It's not arrogance. It's not pride. But it's, it's the deep-rooted rest that, that he has he's been faithful to what he's called him to. He says that he is already being poured out as a drink offering, now here, this is, this is really the language of an Old Testament offering. This Jewish custom of pouring out wine at the base of the altar, part of the ritual sacrifice of a lamb. This is how Paul regards his life, as being poured out. And he's just a few steps away from, from death, but it's not execution, it's exaltation. It's this triumph of a life lived in sacrifice to Christ. And when he talks about this is his time for his departure, the language here is of a, of a ship releasing moorings, so kind of untying from the shore, of a soldier packing up his tent and moving on. Paul understands that he is uh, he's entering in to the ultimate reality, what his heart longs for, what his soul longs for. And again, he doesn't have regret. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And the language here suggests that something has completed with these consequences that still abide. Notice that Paul doesn't win the race. He finishes it. His fight, his race were over, but this victory still abides. Paul saw his gospel work as the work, the noblest, grandest call of them all. And his call to us, as in Hebrews 12, it says that we would run with endurance. Run with endurance the race that lies before us. But what, what awaits us? Not a crown of glory, not a crown of rest. It's a crown of of righteousness. Why is, why is it a crown of righteousness? Well, very simply, it, righteousness is our, is our greatest need. 
We cannot make our hearts and our souls right on our own. We tend to underestimate the, the power, the presence, the distraction of sin in our own lives and in the world around us. We just can't fix it on our own. We can't be, bring the kind of righteousness that God requires. He has to do the work. It's the singular thing we cannot do for ourselves. And to come to that day where this, this Jesus who has given himself, who has died for us, that we would be made righteous. When we come to that day when he crowns us with righteousness, we finally realize what that means and we, and we find this deep, deep rest for which we all long. And this is not just for Marshall. This is not just for the leadership. As at the end of the passage says, it is for all who have loved His appearing. This is for all who have put their hope in Christ. This is for all who strive to finish the race, not because of their own strength, but because of their dependence on Jesus. This is for all whose obedience is not just dormant, but something they, they strive to see working in their lives, in their families, in their workplace, in their neighborhood. For those who can like Paul, death is a triumphant sacrifice. So we have these two postures of, of uh, while we wait and when he comes. So what do we need right now to understand this tension, to maintain this tension? Well, I think there's something about the recovery of time. And this is what I mean. Sarah Clarkson, in, in a book that I've been reading called This Beautiful Truth, which is remarkable, she wonders if, if how, we, how the world experiences time affects our difficulty in believing in God. Our modern world, time is just feels chaotic. You get online and time is, <laughs> is all over the place. She writes that, I would argue strongly that our experience of time is increasingly moved from the incarnational world where God's love comes to make us whole in a concrete, embodied way. When beauty breaks into the circles of our suffering, it always includes a redemption of our experience. It sets us again in the river of God's action and the dynamic movement of the Spirit in which, in which we are. The end of that. But what she's ultimately, I think she's saying we need to recover this sense of holy time, of holy rhythm. And one way, perhaps the way we do that is by gathering in this way. That this is not just, oh, it's Sunday morning, I'm supposed to go to church, but that we see this as, as a way to, uh, to restore time. To, real, to, to kind of set the rhythms again for the coming week. And I know that post-COVID, or in some ways in the midst of COVID still, we're still trying to recover these rhythms of grace. We need to be reminded every week of what is true. To come and to sing, 
to confess our sin, to remember what is true, that, that gosh, I am forgiven. And that it's not just this forgiveness in like, like a holding cell, like I guess I'll just wait, but that there really is renewal today. That there is this already, already of God's kingdom at work in your lives. You may not see it, but when we gather together we're of what is true, we need each other to say, here's what's true. More from Clarkson. She says this, not Kelly Clarkson. What we need healed capacity to imagine and believe the profound goodness of the future. To stand in light of a happy ending whose power reaches into our present and draws us forward into hope. This is what Paul found. His message, his posture is one of hope and eagerness. His sole desire, and he writes this, his sole desire is to be with Christ. So friends, keep running. Endure hardship. Build each other up. Know that your labor is not in vain. Remember your obedience is active. It's beautiful. Remember that Christ will sustain you. And in the end, He'll crown you. Charles Spurgeon said this of his glorious departure, and I'll end with this. To come to thee is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. It is better to be with Christ, far better.